<clears throat> if you brought your you open with me again. <clears throat> this time we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. And if you would hold your pinky in Luke chapter 7, that would be great too. Because I know that she likes to have a lot of attention drawn to herself, I also know Kelly in the room as well who, who came all the way from Oxford, Mississippi to be with us tonight. She just loves all that the people. Everybody look back at Kelly right now, right? She loves that when she, people look at her. <laughs> Consider that an honor, Kelly, to have made such a trip. <clears throat> I remember watching a TV show years ago when a child, um, sort of in their preteen years, um, had sort of first discovered the idea of love. And in an especially tender moment in this TV show, the child looks up at uh, his father and says, you know, Dad, I just, how will I know when I'm in love? In, in other words, what, what, only a child can ask that question, right? Only a child can look at a question like that with that amount of innocence and wonder, how will I know actually when it really is love so that I'll be able to respond to it appropriately? Well, what I've been trying to do uh, this weekend is to get you to ask the question, how will I know when I'm believing? What, what will show up in me when belief and faith in Christ actually end up taking me over? How will I know? <clears throat> Tonight, what I want to look at from 1 Timothy chapter 1 is the way in which the Apostle Paul talks about himself. In other words, we get sort of a, a rare, unique moment where Paul, interestingly enough, nearing the end of his life as he writes these letters back to his understudy Timothy at his favorite church plant, Ephesus, we see him sort of reflect on his own life and his own way of seeing who he is and what his role is in God's kingdom. And I want to compare that with one small little snippet from Luke chapter 7. So let me read for us tonight from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Actually, I said 1 Timothy. I think I mean 2 Timothy. No, I don't mean that either. That's really funny. That's really funny. It is 1 Timothy. Never mind. I was looking at 1 Timothy 2 and thought, wait a minute, number 12, that's not right. Sorry, 1 Timothy 1. This is a sword drill to see how good you do it going back and forth. Your Bible verses. Okay, let's give our attention to God's word this evening. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though I formerly was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Hmm. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus might display his 
Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now listen to me, if you will, from this one little snippet from Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the reading of God's word. Look, I want to start with this question. What did Paul think of himself? John Bunyan entitled his autobiography, uh, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. In other words, what Paul is saying is, is that if he were to take a survey of the sinners that he knew out in the world, he would say, I am the worst of them. Okay? (laughs) Now look, one commentator I read said, look, there are only two possibilities here for Paul. Either Paul's uh, self-abasement is either morbid or it's unreal. And you, you have to think about that for a second. This is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, the author of what? Two-thirds of the books of the New Testament. Pipes up and says, when it comes to sinners out there, you've never met one that's better than me. And when the world hears Christians talk that way, they get a little put off. And they think to themselves, this has got to be one of two options. On the one hand, they look and they think to themselves that it's just kind of unreal. In other words, it looks to sort of the modern ear like that kind of um, that pious exaggeration. You know, I'm just more afflicted than thou kind of mentality. Well, you know, I, I'm just so sinful. I, I really don't know who I am. And people would say, come on, Paul. <laughs> You're the apostle Paul. <laughs> Sinner, worst of sinners, get off your little trip here. You're just exaggerating for the purpose of making a point. No. Ah. When you read through the New Testament, of all things that you begin to realize is Paul is not exaggerating about that. Uh, in numerous places we could look at, beginning in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul confesses that he is the least of all the apostles. In Ephesians 3, later on, he will confess that he is the least of all the saints. Over and over again, he articulates, till by the time he gets to the book of Romans, chapter 7, he looks and says the good things he's trying to do, that he doesn't do, and the evil he's trying not to do, that's the thing he keeps on doing, until finally throws up his hands and says, you know, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In other words, the Apostle Paul is not making it up. (laughs) 
He said it too many times for us to think that that's what he's saying. But the other thing that the modern ear will say to this is say, well, if he's not just faking it, then this is what I really can't stand about Christianity because you Christians are just so morbid. In other words, this is what the world hates about Christianity is because it, it makes you hate yourself. That suddenly you have to look at yourself as if you are the worst of all sinners. Um, and it reminds me of the, uh, a book that I read back when I was in college. I actually had a, a spiritual mentor that used to feed me books. And I remember him giving me a copy of the Confessions of St. Augustine. And I'll be honest with you, I don't remember a whole lot from that experience. But I remember an episode that happened in Augustine's life when he was a child that later on in his life he would remember as being um, spiritually formative to him. What had happened was, is he and some friends were wandering through a, a pear orchard, and he was running with what he referred to as ruffians, and they decided that they would go and steal some pears in a pear orchard. Well, the interesting thing was about it is that they actually had better quality pears at home that were free for their taking. <laughs> um, and the truth of the matter was, is the pears that they stole were not all that great. They didn't need them. They weren't better for them. But this event in Augustine's life really had a, a major impact on him. And one reviewer who reviewed a recent uh, reprinting of Augustine's, uh, uh, Augustine's uh, confession said this in trying to understand Augustine's guilt over this pear orchard uh, experience. He, said, uh, he says, he's a child of a dominant mother, a victim of a guilt-ridden conscience. Augustine writes the bewilderingly haunted confessions in which infantile peccadilloes like stealing pears and adolescent fumblings with instinctive sexuality are bewailed with all the anguish of a frustrated perfectionist. St. <laughs> Augustine, frustrated perfectionist, or at least so here's the modern world. In other words, what they say is, is in order for people to talk this way, they must be victims of a bad upbringing. And so in my opinion, you have two interesting examples in Paul and in Augustine. Because Paul is looking and saying much the same thing. Did you notice that list back there in chapter 1? He looks and he says that he was a blasphemer. He was one who had persecuted Christians. And then it says, at least in my translation, that he was an insolent opponent. That word there is very interesting. I think some of your translations will say that it's a violent man. That word actually is the Greek word hubris, from which we get that famous Greek word that describes how so many of the Greek gods fell. Remember the idea of hubris when you studied Greek mythology? The idea that a man would have so much pride that it would end up destroying everyone around them. Self-destructing pride. So you see what Paul is saying? He said, you have to understand that before I became a Christian, I was as religious as you could get. I did everything that you did and more. You go to church, I went to church more. You prayed, I prayed more. I was the religious man of religious men. But you know what? When all of a sudden I began to uncover the real motives of my heart, I realized that it was just because I wanted to put other people down. I loved the idea that my posturing over them made them look small and me look big. All of my religious activity was simply done to serve me. It was for my purposes that we did this. And here's what's interesting. Augustine says the exact same thing. 
Augustine says in the Confession that when I willed to commit theft of the pears, I did so not because I was driven to it by any need. I stole a thing of which I had plenty of my own and of a much better quality. I did it because it was forbidden. I loved my sin, not what it held for me, but I loved the sin. Do you see how fascinating that is? On the one hand, you have the Apostle Paul, religious zealot. And he's saying, I did what I did because it served me. And on the other hand, you have Augustine, the licentious sort of worldly man, who looked and said, I did what I did because it was for me. I love this thought that, you know, here you have the apostle, uh, the, the, here you have St. Augustine, who is sort of, you know, in the 1960s doing marches for sexual liberation. And then you have the apostle Paul, who is actively protesting those marches at the same time. And yet God's word looks and says, they are exactly the same. Those two people are exactly the same. Because underneath the motive of whether you are a religious zealot or whether you are an irreligious zealot is a deep internal motive of wanting to be in charge of your life. It is sovereignty that we want inside our human natures, is it not? And ultimately, the battle is only between two entities. There is mankind's desire to be in control and God's absolute knowledge of being in control. And those two things create the conflict. And we work that out in all kinds of ways. Some of us chose irreligious paths. We went and got wild for a while. We did the wrong things. Some of us then turned our life around and we became very religious and showed up at church for every single meeting. But when it all came down to it, it was still life on our terms. Before I told God I didn't want his rules, the next I told him that I would keep his rules well. But both ways were trying to leverage favor to him. And Paul looks and says, when I look around at that, I realize that I am the worst sinner that there is because inside my heart there's the ultimate sin of pride because either whether you are the sort of strict moralist or the staunch pagan <laughs> at the heart of it if there's sovereignty there you are and you're counting on it for salvation it makes you the worst of sinners Paul says and isn't it interesting that late in his life Toward the, toward, the, toward the time in his life where, where he was supposed to be slowing down. He says, when I look back on my life, I think I'm the worst of sinners. I wonder if that would describe us in the twilight of our lives. Is that the impression that others get of us? That if we were really to be honest about what goes on in our hearts, that we would have to confess that I am the worst of sinners. Because of what we'd seen inside our heart. Paul said it. Now, before you get lost in that thought, because you're thinking to yourself, well, that sounds like we're all supposed to have poor self-images. <laughs> Can that be right? Nah, that's not the whole story. Because notice what he says in the verses right after that. In other words, as soon as he confesses in verse 15 that he's the worst of sinners, he then turns in verse 16 and says something curious. That, look, it was the depth of my sin that sort of gave God the opportunity to show his mercy in me. So that he could display for the world a perfect patience so that it would be an example to those who would believe. Now, what's interesting is, I'll bet you that you did what I have done when I read this verse for so many years. 
When I read verse 16, I typically look at it and I see Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe. I always thought that the example was talking about the example that Jesus set for us. But that's actually not how the grammar works. <laughs> what you find in the real grammar when you look at it is that um, the example Paul is talking about is him. In other words, he said, God has set me up as an example for all Christians. In other words, if you want to know what the best kind of Christian is, look at me. <laughs> See, now your head's about to explode, right? Because on the one hand, you looked at him and he said, I am the worst of all sinners. And he was like, ooh, you have a bad self-image. That's pathological. And then he turns around in the next verse and says, and now I'm the best Christian there ever was. And you're like, oh, that's pathological too, because now you're conceited. <laughs> So here's my question. How do you put together humility and confidence in the same life? How can Paul look and say on the one hand that he's the worst of sinners, but in the same breath, the same breath, say that he's the best Christian there ever could be? My friends, if that question puzzles you, it probably means that you have yet in your life to discover the radical new self-image that the gospel gives you. You want to put the gospel in one phrase from this, from this chapter? Jesus became your worst so that you could become his best. You see, my friends, it is only on the cross of Jesus where we have all of the pride of human sovereignty being welled up and sort of focused like a magnifying glass on one man at one time. In other words, God laid upon his own son the penalty for all of the sovereignty taking that we have been gathering and complaining over from the moment that we left our mother's womb. He placed it on his son and then he killed him for it. But you see that having killed him for it, there is no way in which God could exact two payments for the saint for one sin. So that when God looks at his people when they are in Christ, he cannot therefore have condemnation for you after he's always, already carried out the sentence for that condemnation on his son. So that in Romans 8, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, those who have seen him to be and seen him and understood him to be the only way in which they can be both humble and confident at the same time. To be the bearer of my sin, but also the lifter of my head. And that creates in me a fascinating, almost amazing self-image that I can look at you and say, if you really want to get further down in my heart, see, you know, I mean, you can make friends when you come for a weekend. Hopefully you're saying to yourself, well, he's a nice enough gentleman. He talks too long, but he's a nice gentleman, right? But I promise you, the reason why you think that I'm a nice person is because you don't know me. <laughs> if you were to live in my house, you would know that I'm capable of all kinds of things. How can we say that but at the same time not be crushed by that? Have you ever struggled and sort of... Have you ever struggled with the thought of how hard it is to admit things to yourself about yourself? Because a lot of times those admissions of what's really motivating me feel like a little death. I don't know what it would mean for me to admit those things. Because we fear being crushed by our own guilt and by our own judgment of ourselves. 
But see, Jesus comes along and looks and says, I have rescued you from that being a crushing experience. Right? I mean, 2 Corinthians. Uh, what does is, what is, uh, Paul say in 2 Corinthians uh, 5, 21? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. Did you hear that? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become his righteousness. Jesus became your worst so that you could be his best. So that when God looks at you, he sees all of your sin, but he sees all that sin as having already been paid for. And so he sees the equivalent, the moral equivalent of your son. My favorite illustration of this came from a, a Ligonier conference years ago. R.C. Sproul, who was the only guy who could get away with actually uh, doing a question like this, looked out across his congregation and said, I would like to know any of you in this room who believe that you are as righteous as I am. Stand up, please. And he laughed to himself a little bit when almost the entire room stood up. He said, okay, that's exactly what you're supposed to have done. He goes, now I want to see how many of you believe that you are as righteous as your own home pastor remains standing. Yeah, about half of them kind of sat down. No offense, Bill. Half of them sat down, still a handful of them sat down. He said, okay, he goes, how many of you believe that you are as righteous as Billy Graham? The entire congregation sat down except for one man standing on the second row. And R.C. Sproul, again, he's the only one who can get away with this, looks and goes, this is the only man who understands the gospel in the room. Because he said, in Christ, you are viewed as if you are as righteous as Jesus himself. That is the way in which he sees you. What a radical way of looking at oneself. Now, I know what you're asking. You're saying, okay, Les, what does this mean, though, about faith? My friends, I want to submit to you that at the heart of faith, with the eyes of the innocence of a child that looks and says, Daddy, how will I know when I am believing? The answer that Paul will give to you is, you will know when you have humility and confidence in the exact same life. Because the gospel has come on you and shown you the depth of your need and shown you the fullness of Christ. And there's no better example that we get from this than from Luke chapter 7, because Jesus just comes right out and saying it. In other words, Paul, you know, Jesus is sort of walking through the countryside, and a centurion, a Roman centurion, these are one of the bad guys. These are the, the, the military people, but someone who had come to believe and put his trust in Jesus. And of course, the religious leaders of his day come, and how do they sort of want to sell this guy to Jesus? They look and say, oh, you really need to help this guy, Jesus. I mean, oh, he's totally worthy of you helping him. I mean, he built our synagogue for us. He's an awfully wealthy person. Look how much money he spent. He bought the church organ, right? He's got three or four pews that are dedicated to him as well. He's wonderful. He is worthy for you to come and heal him. Notice that Luke records no response from Jesus, I think because he didn't have a response. He probably thought to himself, well, this will be interesting. But all of a sudden, the centurion does something that you would never expect a Gentile to do. He sends one of his servants along to look and say, you know what, Jesus, don't bother. There's no reason for you to come to my house. You want to know why? Because I am not worthy to have you come in my house. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> the religious leaders were trying to appeal to this man because he's worthy. 
But if you were to ask him for his confession about his own life, he's like, I'm not even worried that I have you here. If you just say it, I know it could be done. And what does Jesus say? I tell you, in all of Israel, among my own covenant people, I have not seen such faith. Look, we spent the first two, the first two messages talking about the wrong views of faith. Now we come to, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful first steps of faith. One of the hardest things about faith is worrying about whether or not you're believing properly. Ever had this question? Well, I don't know. Am I believing? Am I, did I, was I sincere enough? When I was a child, I grew up in a religious tradition that was constantly asking me to ask myself that question. I, I remember going on youth retreats multiple times where people would challenge me with questions about my spiritual state and would say, now, if you pray to ask Jesus into your heart with sincerity, he'll come in and save you. And I remember being tied up in knots at that question thinking, was I sincere? I mean, did I mean it? And unfortunately, the preacher would say something behind it like, and if you've been struggling with that besetting sin since that time, maybe the last time it didn't really take. And I thought to myself, well, I guess I better pray the prayer again. I have asked Jesus into my heart more times than I know how to count. Why? Because I was focused on my faith and not on Jesus. That's the difference. My friends, faith is looking away from yourself to him and his sufficiency. And that means that I've got to look at myself and say, Bleh. I am empty, but he is full. I am hungry and he has fed me. That is the exercise of faith. You want to read a great old Scottish saint. Find a guy named Horatius Bonner. Back in the late 1800s, this guy was a Scottish elder who wrote some wonderful books. And he wrote a book called, um, oh goodness, it just left me. I should have written this down. He wrote a great book that I'll remember before the sermon's over. <laughs> but at one point, Bonner's written a bunch of the hymns inside the, the Trinity hymnal. Um, and at one point he says this, to someone who looks and says, I'm struggling because I don't know if I'm believing properly. He says this. He says, if someone looks and says that they don't know how to believe on Christ because of the difficulty of acting this faith and that a divine power is needed to draw it forth, which he finds not, you tell him that believing in Jesus is no work, but a resting on Jesus Christ. In other words, this is the kind of person who would look and say, well, I want to believe, but I just wish God would kind of change my heart. I wish God would just kind of make something happen that would kind of get me excited about going to church once in a while. In other words, the real problem is that God hasn't done enough for me. When all of a sudden we have just turned faith right on its head. Listen to what Bonner says. He says, this pretense is as unreasonable as that if a man wearied with a journey and who is not able to go one step further should then argue I am so tired that I am not able to lie down and rest. Did you catch that? You missed it. You missed it. I'm going to do it again because you missed it. This pretense is as unreasonable as if a man who is wearied with a journey and not able to go one step further should then argue, I am so tired that I'm not able to lie down. When indeed he can neither stand nor go. The poor wearied sinner can never believe on Jesus Christ 
until he finds he can do nothing for himself. And in his first believing does always apply himself to Christ for salvation as a man hopeless and helpless in himself. Look, my friends, I'll have students that sort of come into my office after we um, have RUF on Wednesday nights. And they'll sit in my office and they'll say, you know, Les, you were talking about all this stuff and you got all worked up there about faith and whatever else. And I just don't know. I feel like there's so much in my life. I feel like I'm just a mess. And I've never felt further away from God. And I always want to say, you feel like a mess? (laughs) I don't think you've ever been closer to God. Because the nearer you get to him, the more you start to see what he brings out in you. And what that's supposed to do is to create dependence upon him. One last thought, and I'll finish with this. Have you ever thought about how weird it is that Jesus asks his followers to fast? What a strange exercise of Christian uh, discipline. Well, you know, I love Jesus, and so therefore I'm going to stop eating for a day or two. Does that strike you as odd? Why not burn a sacrifice or something, or I don't know, build a building? I'm going to stop eating. But Jesus commands his followers to willfully disengage from normal food for periods of time so that we can commit ourselves to prayer. Why would he do that? Unless the physical feeling of hunger is the nearest physical analog to what it feels like to believe. That is, it is the emptiness of me. It is the fact that I am lacking that is the only qualifier to making you able to respond to Jesus. Spurgeon used to call it the warrant of faith. By what right do you say that you will grasp hold of Christ and find your life in Him? And Spurgeon will say, the only warrant of faith is that Jesus has offered it to a pitiful sinner like you. Let me ask you a question. Are you hungry? And I mean spiritually hungry. Is there something inside you that looks and says, it's just not making sense anymore for me? Let me exhort you to not fill up that emptiness with your own faith, but fill it up with Jesus, because that is the biblical faith. Is it not possible that one of the reasons why you've struggled spiritually is because your faith is not in Jesus, but your faith is in your faith? What is your testimony? Well, when I was a small child, I had a dear pastor who sat down and prayed with me, and I I prayed the prayer and asked, Ask Jesus into my heart. Is that your testimony? (laughs) My testimony is that every passing day I get closer and closer to Paul's confession that if you want to take a poll of the sinners out there, I'll be at the top of that list. But I've also found that every single morning his mercies are ever newer. And as I see him more, I suddenly fade away. I must decrease. He must increase. What did John the Baptist mean? And my friends right there become the seedlings of true faith. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, is it too much for us to ask that you would help us to believe? Certainly there are both kinds of people. Some of us have run away from you with our irreligion. We have kept pet sins and secret sins to ourselves and use them as 
ways in which we will say, you will not touch this area, Lord. Others of us have run away from you with our religion. We look at you as if you owe us because of the years of service that we've even given to this very church. And we think that we have your salvation because we deserve it. And Lord Jesus, we are all the same. (laughs) We are all as pitiful as we can be. We are insolent opponents. We are violent people that bear other people down in the name of establishing our own reputations and our own goodwill, our own good posture, whether to the community, to our friends, or to our family. But Lord Jesus, in this moment when we begin to consider the true depths of sin in our heart, we pray that you would give us an equal and more glorious vision of your provision for us on the cross. That you have come to save sinners like us. And that all we need to bring is, in fact, our need. (laughs) That all we need is nothing. And for so long we've tried to bring something. So, Lord Jesus, would you then this evening, by the grace of your Holy Spirit, make us to be a believing people. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Les. 562, the forest.